This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. This is Be the Change, a summer podcast series from the Felton e. Henderson Center for Social Justice at UC Berkeley School of Law. I'm Savala Chopchinsky, and I direct the Henderson Center, the social justice center at the law school. I wanted to find a way for us to stay in community over the summer and to have fun conversations with people who, in their life and in their work, are the change that we need to see in the world. My guest today is Judge Felton E. Henderson. He sits on the Northern District of California, and he's going to be retiring after 37 years on the bench. Um, His last day in the courtroom will be this August. He's a Berkeley Law graduate. He's the namesake of the Social Justice Center at Berkeley Law, and he is a true icon. He's made decisions on the bench that literally no one else has ever made, such as deciding that gay and lesbian Americans have equal protection of the law under the 14th Amendment. He has made decisions that impact everything from sexual harassment victims' rights to environmental rights to the California prison system. He is humane, he's funny, he's brilliant, and he brings all of these qualities to his position of power in service of the very, very best ideals of our Constitution. I can't think of anyone more worthy of praise for a young lawyer than Judge Henderson. He's here with me today to talk about his adventures in social justice on and off the bench. Judge Henderson, welcome to Be the Change. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. It's so exciting. I pinch myself in this job every day, and this is one of those moments where I can't believe my luck. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this discussion with you. I want to start our conversation the same place that I'm starting all of these conversations for Be the Change, Mm -hmm. which is by asking you to describe One of the first times, maybe as a child, that you experienced social justice, meaning that you saw or you felt or understood that there were um, patterns of inequality in the world or that there were people who were fighting to change them. Hmm. Well, that's hmm, interesting. That's a fairly complicated question for one who grew up in South Central L.A., an all-black community because, in my view, by definition, you're living, that's the creation of a discriminatory uh, society or government or whatever you have. So you're experiencing it every day, but it's the norm, and I want to make that distinction. So I grew up there, and uh, you don't think about uh, the fact that you're living in the projects and somehow that's not fair or not like other people who don't live there. But apart from that, uh, the first time I can remember uh, uh, 
a dramatic discrimination or unjust situation was when I was just starting junior high school. Uh, uh, it must have been 11 or 12, I'm guessing. And I, my mother insisted that I go across town to a primarily white school. And so it was the first time I was really doing things outside of South Central L.A. And uh, they had an organization in L.A. that was called the DAPS, D-A-P-S, and that stood for Deputy Auxiliary Police Corps. And the police were going around to the schools, not in my neighborhood, but in this neighborhood that I was going across town to school in and encouraging kids to join the DAPS and be good citizens and go to meetings and have policemen visit them and you get a little badge. And some of my friends who were white uh, went down to the police station as the uh, principal told us to do to sign up for the DAPS. And uh, we went down and the guy at the desk, uh, when we told him what he wanted, he sort of looked at me and said, well, uh, let's see, you need to go to your neighborhood, to the police station in your neighborhood uh, to join the DAPS. And uh, there were no DAPS in my neighborhood. And as it went along and the other kids actually stepped forward and say, why can't he be with us? We go to the same school. I became realized that there was something more than just what neighborhood you lived in and that uh, this uh, policeman uh, didn't want me joining the DAPS, that they didn't have any black kids in, in that uh, division. I remember that deeply, and uh, all, all three of us, the kids, all four of us, me and three others, talked about it, and uh, I really felt... Uh, the injustice of it and the unfairness of it. That's my first memory of something sort of institutional like that. Did you talk to your mom about it or the principal, I, teachers? I didn't. I didn't. I just sort of didn't know what to do. I sulked uh, for a bit. The kids, my friends did. They were more used to this. I just had no experience with that. They mentioned it to the teachers. They mentioned it to the others. And there was some talk about doing something, but nothing ever came of it. I just didn't join the DAPS. In 1962, just after finishing law school, mm -hmm. you were in the Deep South as mm -hmm. the first black attorney in the DOJ's Civil Rights Division. Right. Which deserves a round of applause in and of itself, <laughs> of course. And while you were there, you were investigating local law enforcement and abuses of people's rights mm -hmm. alongside Dr. King and other activists and people who would come to be understood as luminaries for the civil rights movement. Are there certain sense memories of that time that you carry with you? Sounds, tastes, smells, things that you saw, textures of that moment that to me must have been incredibly rich that have never left you? I think so. Yeah, there were memories that will stay with me forever and I think also have influenced my own subsequent behavior in life. Uh, one of the things I remember most uh, was just the sheer bravery of the people 
who were demonstrating uh, down south in Birmingham and Jackson and Selma, and I was really impressed with that. Uh, I'd see kids come to Birmingham, uh, and they would have their toothbrush and toothpaste wrapped in a face towel and put it in their little jacket, ready to go to jail, expecting to go to jail. And uh, and that was brave because uh, Bull Connor had uh, police dogs and fire hoses and cattle prods, and uh, they, they were treated pretty poorly. And I was very impressed uh, with the bravery that I saw at every stop uh, when I was covering these demonstrations for the Civil Rights Division. And I actually developed uh, a sense of guilt because uh, although I was black and I got arrested a number of times when the local police didn't know I was a member of the Justice Department, uh, I had an ID that was pretty impressive looking, and I could pull that out, and they would uh, let me go. And uh, I started talking to Dr. King, and he would tell me, uh, only half-jokingly, you know, Felton, the best thing you could do for the movement was uh, to get arrested and show that any black is subject to this discrimination and this behavior, and even and he would sort of chuckle and say, it'd be even better if they hit you all up alongside your head. And he used that phrase uh, while he did it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I knew he would really like to see me do that I mean, and make a part of his movement and make the statement that would be heard about the treatment of blacks. Uh, and uh, I got arrested several times, but uh, never, uh, never got brutalized uh, because a couple of times I actually ended up pulling out my idea. But that is the, the searing memory I have of just the sheer bravery of these people. In Selma, I saw uh, on a big voting rights day there, I was monitoring that along with another attorney from the department, and uh, they had slowed down the voting, and it was a searing hot day, and I saw some young kids... And, they, and the, the uh, sheriff told the people in line that if you got out of line, uh, you lost your place. So and they had slowed down the registration process. So people were standing literally hours there without drink, and some had to go to the bathroom. Mm. And uh, I saw some kids uh, get some uh, crates that hold soda water uh, bottles and they put cups of cold water and Kool-Aid and things like that in there to take them across to the voters. And the sheriff had said uh, you couldn't approach the voters because we had got an, an injunction against interfering with the voters. And uh, the sheriff had interpreted that, that, that no one could come up and talk to them. Uh, and I saw these kids uh, get uh, instructions uh, from the head of SNCC about how to protect themselves because they knew they were going to get beat up. There were some deputies that the people at Rednecks had been deputized and they were standing across the street. And I saw these kids walk across there with these uh, crates uh, and uh, we actually got the FBI to film this. And it was one of my first insights into 
the way the FBI was treating civil rights in those days. Uh, and when I looked at the film afterward, we saw the uh, kids walk across the street. We saw them approach these deputized people. We saw them step forward. And I actually saw it, but I'm now looking at the film. I saw them raise their hands, and then the camera went off and lost them and started looking up on the building at windows in the building, and it just wasn't filmed. And that was intentional. Uh, but anyway, uh, the point I'm making is just that bravery to do that. Uh, it, it stays with me. And, and many times when I've had a situation involving justice, or I think of that bravery, and it stiffens my spine a little, even to this day. I have to ask, did um, the people who were waiting in line get the water? Were the children able to actually deliver no, the water? No, they to... didn't. No, the water was spilled. The crates, you know, they were knocked out of their hands. They fell to the ground and they didn't get their water. What were your impressions of Dr. King as a person? An amazing man. Again, an inspirational man. Uh, and one story I like to tell we all know him, that voice and uh, the way he can inspire you and his articulateness. Uh, but uh, I saw another side of him that told me how hard his task really was. We were in uh, Birmingham, and uh, you may or may not know that in Birmingham was the only place a black could stay, mm -hmm. a public place. It was the A.G. Gaston Motel, and we both stayed there. And uh, very often on a slow day, uh, we might hang out together. We'd talk out in the courtyard or have a coffee in the restaurant, or I'd go to his room. And on this particular day, he had a big press conference coming up. New York Times, a press from all over the country was there. He had a big announcement. And we were in his room, and he was in his uh, undershirt, and he was dead tired. He was perspiring, and uh, he had had a, a late night and a tough day the day before. And uh, I could tell he was just dragging. And uh, Finally, Andy Young came into the room and said, okay, uh, Mike, he called him Mike. Okay, Mike, it's time to go. And we were on the second floor, and he was going to speak from that balcony. And he sort of pulled himself up, and he went into the bathroom, which was right next to the bed we were sitting on, and he splashed some cold water on his face and wiped it off and freshened up, put on a shirt, and then went out there, and then he became Martin Luther King, that one you always mm, see. Mm -hmm. But I'd seen the other one right there, and I still remember that. I mean, a brave man. Uh, and he got out there with that voice, that resonance in his voice, and gave the press conference and the speech. Uh, and uh, another thing about him is a number of times, uh, when you look at the newsreels about him, there's one where... He made this great speech, and he said, I may not get there with you. Uh, he said that a number of times in public, not those words. But just again, I'm convinced that he knew mm -hmm. he wasn't going to live a long time. And uh, I know he cared, but he was willing to do what he was doing and take the consequences uh, to free his people. 
and uh, just an incredibly brave uh, man with the leadership that I wish we had today that I think is missing. What you say about Dr. King is remarkable to me because it is indeed true that he was a singular human being. He was. He was irreplaceable. And yet he was a human being. He was, As yes. you described, he was someone who was tired and splashed water on his face and mm-hmm. wore an undershirt on a hot day. Right. Which, in a way, it means none of us are allowed to simply opt out because we don't think that we're exceptional enough mm-hmm. to complete the task ahead of us. Right. You've been on the bench for almost 40 years. Mm-hmm. What have you concluded about human nature from all of the people that have come through your courtroom? Well, it's interesting. I've had two views of human nature, just the human condition, the way people behave under pressure or otherwise. Uh, You know, I have criminal cases and I have civil cases. And the civil cases, I, I see entirely different kinds of people. And the message I get from that, uh, people can be incredibly greedy and selfish and egotistical and unfair to each other and combative. Uh, although there are uh, memorable people who are charitable and good human beings that are engaged in civil litigation. Uh, the, the, the greater impression I get is from my criminal cases where I see a huge capacity for redemption from people. Uh, most of the criminal defendants are, are from lower economic groups, uh, underprivileged groups, racial groups, and uh, they show a remarkable capacity for redemption if given a chance. And that's why I've been quoted many times as saying we need more rehabilitation rather than punishment. And I've participated in a number of diversion programs where people have been arrested for a felony but given a chance to uh, amend their ways in what's usually an 18-month program so that if they don't have an education, they dropped out and they were scuffling and they started selling drugs or whatever, they're made to, to get out of this program to get an education, whether it's a GED or continue, graduate from high school or even community college, if they need a job, if that's their problem, we had uh, connections that would get them a job to work. And it, it works wonders. And I've seen some of these people who've completed these 18-month uh, programs, and at which point when they graduate successfully, the felony is eliminated from their record, uh, and they go on to make uh, uh, something of themselves. And it's just been really remarkable how people who have really had a disadvantaged life can uh, right themselves and go on to have a fulfilling life. And it's been very inspiring for me, and that's why I've been such a supporter of these kinds of programs. I think... When I interviewed for the position as executive director, 
Um, you and I talked a little bit about my dad, who was incarcerated for many years. Mm-hmm. As I'm saying this, I'm wondering why on earth I <laughs> brought that up in a job interview. But um, <laughs> probably I would only do that with you, Judge Henderson. Um, so he was incarcerated for many years. And um, what I feel most when I think about that hole in his life is the absolute crushing of human potential. It's yeah. just squandered. And I I wonder if you have had to kind of buttress yourself against feeling weighed down by that as you have seen so many people sort of be caught up in the jaws of the criminal justice system over the last four decades. I, I have. And indeed, uh, uh, I it really got to me. I, I came to resent my criminal caseload at a point where they they changed the the law a bit and they had what they call sentencing guidelines, right. which uh, made judges uh, give mandatory minimum sentences for certain kinds of crimes. And uh, it really sickened me. I found myself sending young kids uh, to prison or young people to prison for a minimum of 10 years for some uh, drug offenses and uh, so that I actually got out of the sentencing uh, when I got became 65 mm-hmm. and became a senior judge. At that point, a, a federal judge can never decide what cases you want. You get the ones that are assigned. But when you become a senior judge, you can decide what cases you don't want. And Aha. so I got out of the criminal calendar because I got tired of what I thought were much too severe uh, punishments uh, for people who needed that chance, that chance of redemption. And uh, the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me were two cases. Two young kids lived up uh, north in, the, in uh, what's the marijuana country uh, up around Eureka, and they were going away to college. They had no record. They decided to grow some marijuana on their parents' property, and it was adjacent to a, a federal forest land. was just adjacent, and they were growing it in there, and the rangers stumbled upon it, and uh, uh, they were charged. And this was their first offense, but because of the quantity of the drugs and I had to give them a mandatory 10-year sentencing, and I just thought that's unjust. And I got out of the uh, criminal calendar for a number of years, and then the Supreme Court started interpreting these guidelines and giving judges much more leeway again like it was. And so I'm now back in. I got in about five or six years ago, and I'm back in now because uh, they're fairer in my view, although not as fair as I would like them to be. But yeah, it, 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 it's, it's crushing to see people that I know uh, are smart uh, and have had a bad break and have had bad judgment. Let's admit that too. And they've done some damnable things even. But uh, I've seen so many of them, if given the chance, right their ship and uh, go on to have a productive life. Is there a part of the Constitution that captures your imagination that just 
ignites you, you know, that you just want to read and highlight, you know, every every other day the way I do with the Constitution well, sometimes. There are many parts of it, but I'm, I'm, I'm here talking as a judge. Uh, and so I'm going to do that part of the talk about that part of the Constitution that excites me as a judge. And it sounds a little selfish, but Article 3 is a wonderful uh, part of the Constitution because it it says that federal judges uh, will serve uh, 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 for life during good behavior. Right. And it's called lifetime tenure. And uh, it's, it, it excites me because uh, it, it means that on those tough cases that I've had over the years, I can rule according to my conscience and following the law without worrying that I'm going to be thrown out of office uh, because somebody doesn't like my ruling. And it, it is, uh, I think it's given me the spine. It's uh, given me to do what I think is right. And I don't mind being reversed. If a court says you got it wrong, Felton, that's fine. That's, that's the way our system works. We have a correction for trial judges like myself at the Ninth Circuit. Uh, and uh, if you don't like their decision, the Supreme Court will give it another look. Right. And that's a wonderful system because I do miss points sometimes and uh, get it wrong. But uh, the fact that uh, I can do it the way I think it ought to be done without fear uh, of being uh, uh, impeached, and I've been threatened with impeachment uh, a number of times, but I don't worry about it because they can't really do it for doing my job. That's that's the part of the Constitution that I think is is a very important one to have have our this, our system of justice. Uh, yeah, that's that's legit. I mm. I can totally get behind um, your faith in, in Article Three. Though you have you have had to deal with threats around some of your decisions right. to your personal safety, mm-hmm. which happens to many judges. Right. Um, how do you metabolize that? Mm. What you do, I mean, I sometimes jokingly say, depending upon who it is making the threats, and very often they let themselves be known, uh, you know, it, it, it t- the message I get from it is, well, I must be doing something right. If they don't like me, I'm probably doing my job right. That's sometimes the message I get from it. Uh, other times, uh, it's uh, sheer ignorance. And sometimes it doesn't even have to be a big case. I'll sometimes get a letter from people who just don't even understand what I've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, either they, they don't understand the law or the paper got it wrong. Uh, but... Uh, I um you don't respond. Do I you? don't respond. Right. I no, I've never responded. Uh what I've done uh with some of the threatening letters, the, the marshal has a service and in certain cases when you're going to get a lot of letters, they ask us to wear the, my secretary who opens the mail uh to wear gloves so you don't put mm. fingerprints on it and they look at them to see if they're a legitimate Threat, and there have been a couple of times when the nature of the threats were such that they've posted marshals outside my home for a period of time in the evening uh, right. to make sure 
nothing happens or bombs not thrown through the window or whatever they fear might happen. Oprah Winfrey said something um, that that reminds me of this conversation. She said, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but she said, if you're not ready for people to talk bad about you, then you're not ready for success. Yeah. Now, a threat is more than talking bad about you, but Mm -hmm. I'm struck that you have some of that chutzpah, right? Mm -hmm. You've got a little bit of that willingness, maybe a lot of bit of that willingness to um, step outside the line and have people disagree, whether it's a higher court or the citizens. Mm -hmm. Do you think you were like that as a child or is this something that you've developed like a muscle over the years? I think it's developed. And again, it goes back to one of the earlier questions. And I, I think that a part of that development was seeing the bravery down south and seeing what, uh, racial injustice really was all about. And that even takes us back to the first question when I talked about growing up in South Central L.A. Well, that was, uh, I I didn't really know discrimination and racism there. You know, people might treat you impolitely and tell you you couldn't rent a house or you couldn't rent a room here and couldn't eat there and do things. But it was a, 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 a giant step beyond when I went down south and saw real segregation and white supremacy, Jim Crow laws at work. And it was a real eye-opener for me. I think it's carried over uh, into uh, my uh, commitment to do something about that and to express those views in my writings was there a part of you when when you were in the South that just could not wait to get back to L.A.? No, really, no. I was caught up in the fight there, and I think uh, it's interesting. I don't know how long I would have stayed there on that job uh, had I not been uh, asked to leave. Uh, well, I wasn't going to ask but, you about that. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's, that's a part of my history, uh, you know, for lending the car to Dr. King. That ended my... Uh, career in the Civil Rights Division, I probably would have stayed because it was a wonderful fight and it was wonderful to be, find myself hanging out with people like Dr. King and Andrew Young and John Mm. Lewis. Uh, No, it was a high highlight of my life at that time. Were there women that you remember from that time as being incredibly strong or brave. Uh, you know, one of the criticisms of the way we talk about the civil rights movement is that it's very focused on the work and the accomplishments of men, of which there were many, 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 but that women, their role is sort of erased in our mm-hmm. sort of national memory about that time. Uh, the, the one that comes to mind foremost is Fannie Lou Hamer, a fantastic woman, great leader, every bit as great. Uh, in, in a different way as Martin Luther King in the sense that she had oratorical skills. She could lead you. She could get you to get up and go march for that cause, was incredibly brave. She was beat up uh, and rose to go out again. Incredible. Uh, uh, having a senior moment, Diane, uh, mm-hmm. Diane Nash was a wonderful leader and, again, brave. Uh, she started as a student and got involved in it. Uh, 
uh, was wonderfully brave. There are others there quietly behind the scenes brave. And, and one of the things that is missed in terms of bravery, uh, just anybody who uh, supported Dr. King or SNCC or uh, any group that came down south to work on voting or civil rights, anyone, a local person who supported it, was brave because they were taking names mm. and taking photos. And when Dr. King or the group would leave on the Mississippi summer, for example, when they cleared out for the summer, uh, those people uh, faced retribution. They, they lost their there. jobs. They were still there. And uh, the uh, the locals would uh, uh, get retribution and punish them badly for that. So, so untold bravery just in, in stepping up and doing those things. And it really, it, again, it, when I think about it, I, I sometimes want to cry at the cruelty and the, that they got for their acts and the bravery that they showed. There's a funny thing about protest and movements and activism which is that you don't necessarily know when it's happening, whether it's a watershed moment, right? Mm -hmm. History tells us whether something was the inflection point. I think about the march in Selma. Mm -hmm. That was a group of people walking across a bridge. It was Mm -hmm. much, much more than that. Looking back, it was one of the times that pricked the moral consciousness of the country. But at the time, there was no way for the people who were taking steps across the bridge to understand that 50 years later mm-hmm. we would look back and you know think of that as as one of the moments. Right. Did you have a sense or do you think the people around you had a sense that they were in a real moment, a real inflection point or was it more just we have no choice but to do this fight and whether our contribution is small or huge is up to history to say. Mm-hmm. I think that the people, this is a guess, but I think that the people saw it as they were inspired. Dr. King is down here, or whoever it was that was down there. Uh, They were inspired by that, and he's going to be our leader, and he's going to get us out of this. So I'm now emboldened. I'm going to do what he says, and I'm going to march with him. I think it was just pure faith that this was a good thing to do and that it was going to uh, get them their freedom or their voting rights or whatever it was. But I think the real genius of Dr. King was he knew uh, after the Albany demonstrations, which were really not successful Mm -hmm. because the sheriff didn't do anything to them. Right. And King saw right there that that doesn't work just blacks protesting. He had the genius to know, and he was sort of hinting at it to me, that if the sheriff abused people, it would get on the front page of the New York Times. Right. He recommended that you exactly, <laughs> take the wall and, up upside the head. And he knew that this was going to happen to these kids or to anybody who demonstrated, and that was going to make the success of the movement. So I think the people... They knew that might happen, but King knew it was necessary, but nonviolence, because just getting out there and fighting and throwing rocks 
and exchanging gunfire wasn't going to do it. But nonviolence, where you're victimized and you demonstrate it, and it's on the paper every other day as you do this, was what got the national conscience, got the people throughout the country coming, got whites streaming uh, to Birmingham and other cities to help the cause that that made it successful. And King, King's genius knew that was what would happen and what was needed. We've got new leadership in Washington. Do you feel ready to leave the bench following the election? Uh, I feel ready. Uh, I'm reluctantly leaving. And I had made the decision to leave the bench before the election. I, I had assumed, like most of the crowd I run with, that Hillary would be the president. But uh, uh, I feel ready to leave. And uh, I feel that uh, certainly on our court, on the bench, we have, uh, I, think it, I think the numbers are 11 uh, of the judges on our court in San Francisco are young, bright, dedicated Obama appointments, and uh, they'll bring energy probably to the cases they get that I might have gotten. Right. So it, it, it's in good hands. And we'll have uh, some Berkeley Law lawyers we'll have, before it, them it, making it, eloquent arguments. Exactly. Passionate, you know, this, it, that, and the other. Exactly. But uh, I do intend to stay involved because I think there is much, much to fight about these days. And I plan to do that. I'm thinking of doing some work in immigration or asylum work or other things. Uh, My former law partners uh, have already approached me about participating in an amicus brief before the Supreme Court on an important uh, immigration matter. So I will be involved in that way. Yeah, it doesn't sound uh, much like retirement, what you're describing yeah, here. Yeah, No, no, it's, it's <laughs> retirement because my wife and I, uh, uh, we love to travel and take car trips. Uh, we call them family trips with Maria and Missy, our dog, and me. Yeah. Uh, we plan to do that. We, we're already planning some of those trips, but uh, not otherwise to become a couch potato and do nothing. I don't think you are constitutionally capable of, of being a couch potato, Judge Henderson. I hope that's right. I hope you're right. <laughs> well, this has been so much fun. Um, I, I feel so blessed to be talking with you. Thank you so much, Judge Henderson. Thank you, Savala. I've enjoyed it very much. That was the Honorable Felton E. Henderson. This is Be the Change. I'm Savala Trubchinsky. Stay tuned for more conversations with social justice thinkers and doers. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.